Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's got... some lovely filth down here! Oh! How do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, feel... please, good people, I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh. Come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed! Bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway! Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Order! 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 So this week on the podcast, we're traveling to Oregon to speak with Lawrence Taylor. Taylor is a delegate in the Oregon Democratic Party. He is an ex-DNC member from 2013 to 2016. He is an expert in parliamentary procedure. Hi, my name is Larry Taylor. Uh, today was the election of officers for the Democratic Party of Oregon. The Democratic Party of Oregon does this every two years. If you want to experience pure democracy, this is the place to be uh, because we... Uh, <laughs> We exercise democracy and parliamentary procedure from the beginning to end. Uh, we finished the day by electing the officers. First off, we elected the chair. Uh, it's been a roller coaster. We started out with at least six candidates that we thought were going to file. Uh, four finally did, uh, but several dropped out. And so what we ended up with was two today, uh, Casey Hansen and Christine Chin Ryan. When the uh, dust settled, uh, Casey Hansen won. This will be the first time that a county chair has been elected chair of the Democratic Party of Oregon since 2006. We must work as a cohesive team. We are stronger for our deliberation. 
for our debates, and we are even stronger with our disagreements. When we have people who have not come from the county parties, they don't understand parliamentary procedures. So I think this is a, a, a brand new era for the Democratic Party of Oregon. Welcome. Thank you for uh, uh, having me. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to start the conversation with talking about some stuff that happened in March. You folks in Oregon recently elected a new chair, Carla Hansen. But by May, there were lots of issues surrounding her. I had watched a video in which uh, somebody came forward at the beginning of the meeting to censure her for bullying tactics. And I understand that the person she was bullying was you because you had tried to address some secret shenanigans that had been going on under the previous chair. So walk us through a little bit of the background on that and what came of that. Yeah, this is a story that started in 2018 in the third quarter. Uh, I'm also a member of the Rules Committee, um, and one mm -hmm. of the things that the Rules Committee is chartered to do is uh, the process, the rules and procedures for conventions. <clears throat> so we had set up a subcommittee to deal with the rules for the delegate selection conventions in 2020. Uh, uh, we waited and waited. The chair of that committee contacted the, the former TPO chair mm -hmm. several times um, for information from the DNC in terms of guidelines, but uh, she never responded. Uh, we heard indirectly that they were released, and we actually found them on the Internet, uh, that they had been released in November, but they hadn't been given to um, uh, our special committee. Um, the next thing we knew was that the former chair had set up a affirmative action committee that was chartered to do with one little aspect of the delegate selection plan. Mm -hmm. And we thought we would play nice and let her do that piece because no one was enthusiastic about that. And assuming that she would then play nice and give us the rest of the delegate selection plan. But in secret, she set up a separate parallel committee of people of her own choosing. And, uh, and in secret, they developed, uh, pretty much 90% of the delegate selection plan and then revealed it to everyone on April 1st. Mm -hmm. Why do you think uh, she did that in secret? Did you think she had, is she like more of a uh, corporate Democrat and she had some sort of ulterior motives in that direction or what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Uh, the, the, the rules committee was dominated at that time with people who wanted to make some fundamental changes and okay. restore more democracy into the, the party mm -hmm. structure. And so uh -huh. maybe that's why she uh, she decided not to let us work on the delegate selection plan. Okay. But that's pure speculation on my part. Well, it seems reasonable to me. Um, also, now you had sent a letter, I believe, out in regards to some errors that they had engaged in? Yeah. So the, the delegate selection plan was released for public comment on April 1st. Uh, they closed that at the end of April. Uh, they were supposed to meet as a, as a committee and incorporate changes. Uh, and then they, according to their plan, get the delegate selection plan approved by the executive committee instead of the, um, instead of the state central committee. Mm -hmm. uh, they could only do this in terms of emergency and being something that they knew about for four months. It, did, it hardly qualified as an emergency. Um, they also didn't incorporate any changes that had been submitted. I personally submitted 13 pages of 
problems I had with the um, delegate selection plan, uh, which none were uh, were incorporated. So what happened was after it was approved by the executive committee and submitted to the DNC, I composed a letter that that listed seven things that were either bylaws or parliamentary procedure infractions mm-hmm. uh, in the development of the in the approval of the plan and sent that out. And so uh, that was what caused the current chair then to issue a number of emails uh, basically bullying me and accusing me of uh, nefarious actions and, you know, calling all my motives into question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that continued right up till the day of the censure, which is what you saw in the video. Right. Okay. So let me go back for a second and talk about the actual delegate uh, selection plan. What were some of the issues that you saw from this when it was finally released? There were two things that, that stuck out. The first thing was that they specified plurality voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people get these different voting types confused, but uh, plurality voting is not a form of preferential voting. It is the least like form of voting in, in rituals of order. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, uh, you know, this plurality voting is what it disenfranchises minorities the most. Because it allows for vote splitting, and you end up not electing the people that you truly want to be elected. Um, So it undermines the concept of uh, election by majority. Can you explain a little bit for the audience that does not know the difference, what those differences are between plurality voting and majority voting? Sure. So majority voting voting means that you you vote until someone gets 50% or more. And so if you have if you're electing four delegates, uh, and on your first round of voting, one gets 50% plus one, uh, but the rest get less than 50%, then you do a second round of voting until, uh, until you fill all the slots by at mm-hmm. least, uh, 50% majority. Uh, a way to, uh, mitigate the time that it takes to do a series of majority votes is to do some form of preferential voting where you indicate your first, second, and third choices. So that if your first choice is not the winner, then your vote goes to the next your next choice, and that generally results in the same uh, the same elected persons that you would get through a majority vote process. Mm-hmm. Plurality voting is just one vote, and you know, say you've got ten people voting, uh, and you've got four candidates. If one candidate gets uh, four votes and another candidate candidate gets two votes, the the candidate who gets the four votes uh, wins, even though it's not 50%. It's the person who gets the most votes. Right. Yeah, we use plurality voting here in California as well. Um, Also, part of what I noticed in that video was there was a complaint about minutes. uh, The minutes were missing items. What were those missing items that didn't get put in the minutes from the previous meeting? Is that an important part of the conversation? A little bit. So the leadership keeps claiming that that they had informed the state central committee of what they've been doing all along, including a notice at at the third quarter meeting last year. And the fourth quarter meeting, I was actually listening very closely to everything that was said during the meetings, and I know exactly what was stated. And all that was mentioned was the affirmative actions committee in the fourth quarter. Um, but people were 
hoping that there would be some indication of of uh, in the minutes of her appointing these things. One of the one of the violations was that she set up her special committee, and three of the members of the committee were not members of the state central committee. Which, if you follow parliamentary procedure, then she has to ask the assembly if it's okay for them to serve. Right. And usually, you know, they're approved and everything's cool. But she never brought it before the assembly because, um, you know, it would it would possibly broach the subject and and tell everyone what she's actually doing. Right. So obviously she she's violating the rules. Uh, so now when the DNC was informed of these issues, what was their response? Well, unfortunately, uh, we had plans to file uh, a complaint. Uh, the rules for filing a complaint stated that they had to be done within 15 days. And there were a mm-hmm. bunch of requirements about notarized signatures. And the people that were working on it didn't get it, get it done within the 15-day time frame. They filed for an extension, and uh, within 12 hours, the, the request for an extension was denied. So we didn't file a complaint. Um, we had been in communication with some of the members of the Rules Committee, and so they knew that there were some issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that got submitted along with the, the delegate selection plan was all of the comments from the public. And so that those comments, including my 13 pages of notes, should have been sent to the DNC so that they are aware of the issues that have been raised. But we don't know uh, we don't know what they're going to do in response to that. There's three things right. they can do. They can either say, you know, your plan is great. Uh, they can say your plan is great except for these minor things that need to be addressed, or your plan is insufficient. And you need to you know do some major work. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. So from your experience as being a member of the DNC, how often does this sort of thing occur? Um, well, my, my experience as a member of the D as a DNC was very disappointing because I would travel to different spots in the United States every quarter. Mm-hmm. And it would be a couple of days of basic dog and pony show so there'd be a bunch of meetings but no decisions made Mm -hmm. and uh you know there would always be a general assembly where you know like obama would come in and talk or something like that but but nothing that that was uh actionable Mm -hmm. and uh i was hoping to you know join the dnc and uh help them improve their things and certainly their image and the way they they uh behaved but there was never a, a a a place where I could get a toehold in what was going on. Mm. Yeah, that actually makes sense. Um, I've actually attended a couple of the DNC uh, meetings and and witnessed more or less what you described. And also the thing that always blew me away was that how many DNC members were actually lobbyists and not even embarrassed by the fact that they were lobbyists. They would, (laughs) you laugh because you know it's true, right? And in fact, there was one guy, I remember I was at the uh, Unity Reform uh, hearings at in the one, the ones in uh, Bally's in Vegas. And this one gentleman literally handed me a business card from his lobbyist firm. And in the corner of the same business card, it said DNC state chair member, whatever it was. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's like brazen. Yeah. I think it's a problem. Yeah, the California is quite a quite an eye opener. Um, 
Yeah. It's actually, the, the operations of the Democratic Party seems to be even worse in California than it is up here in Oregon. It's more of a, it's more of an unruly monster, I think, too. We do have a lot of progressives. I would say progressives are well over majority of the state, but... trying to thwart these guys, the establishment corporate side of the party is really difficult because they, they seem to be able to outmaneuver us at every turn of the screw. It's uh, very frustrating, which we're going to talk to in a minute, because I think uh, the other thing we should discuss is why it's important for progressives to learn the parliamentary system, because I do think that the establishment folks are well-established in how to use Robert's rules. And I think a lot of new activists that are just coming to the fight, uh, new delegates are not, and they get railroaded because of it. I think it's a really important discussion. Yes. Uh, we seem to be at a tipping point up here where, you know, two years ago, it was a couple of us who uh, knew the rules. Uh, now we're getting to the point where a number of people uh, have bought rubber tools of order and they study them and they go to them for reference and mm-hmm. uh, people read the bylaws and they understand how things are supposed to be done. And we're getting to the point where we have a critical mass of people that are pushing back. Um, nothing replaces having a good leadership team that understands that their, their job really is to carry out the will of the assembly Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep getting these people who think that they're the empress or emperor of the party yeah. and they get to dictate what goes on. And so we get this up, this top down, bottom up struggle going on continually. Yeah. I call it the queen of the dais. It's true. Um, I wanted to also ask you about the false press release that Carla Hansen had sent out. What was in this press release that was wrong and why was this important? <laughs> Um, when, uh, let's see, I think it was, uh, like the beginning of April, I wrote up, uh, what was going on inside the Democratic Party, and I put it in the format of a press release, and I had it in a, in a Google folder. Mm-hmm. Um, I had shared it with a couple of friends, uh, so that they could read what was going on, but it had never actually been released. Then one of them had copied it and put it in a private Facebook group, uh, which still isn't a release because only people that belong to the Facebook right, group right. Uh, could read it. And but it was someone private. from the yeah, someone who, who belonged to the Facebook group uh, copied it and sent it to the former DPO chair, who then uh, <laughs> posted it publicly on Facebook and started oh uh, attacking me. So the actual Are you kidding release me? happened. No, the actual release happened by by one of them, not one of us. That's crazy. So did she get some yeah. blowback for that? I mean, how did she not see? That's wild. Well, once it once it, they they realized that I had ever actually issued the press release and that they had actually done the issuing themselves, uh, the discussion about that stopped. Indeed. And what was in this press release that had uh, Carla Hansen so angry? Uh, I basically outlined the things that we talked about here. There had been a separate committee assigned to do the work of the rules committee, and they were doing it in secret, and uh, they weren't being transparent about what was being done. And they were routing it through the executive committee for approval rather than the state central committee. 
So it was just basically a summary of all the things that they've been doing that were violations of the bylaws. Right. Okay. But so that was, was embarrassing. Untrue. Right. Well, she yeah. sort of, it sort of blew back on her. She embarrassed herself. Uh, so let's talk, I want to have a general conversation now about parliamentarian rules and why it's important. So recently, um, as an example, when I was at KDEM, uh, I, there was a whole discussion going on in regards to our ADEM delegate elections where there had been some a lot of corruption. And there was just this back and forth going on where basically most of the committee members of the Credentials Committee were basically saying, well, a little bit of corruption we can excuse as long as it doesn't affect the outcome of the elections. But a lot of corruption, if it affected the outcome, would be bad. And I very much believe that that's ridiculous. You should write it's funny. You shouldn't accept any any uh, corruption whatsoever. So this had been after listening to hours of this, I finally raised my hand. I said, "Press question." I said, "I need to understand why the party thinks a little bit of corruption is okay because that's pretty much what you guys have been arguing here all day." Um, and Laura Laramendi, in response, got her pointy finger out and you know, said you were out of order. And granted, I knew I was out of order, but I was trying to make a point. Um, so my question is this, my roundabout way is when this stuff goes on, do you feel that that the party, the establishment part of the party that doesn't want progressives in leadership, do you think they use Robert's rules to silence any sort of debate or any sort of criticism on, on decisions that they're making? Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they've had 200 years to develop their. Practices. <laughs> I mean, I've I've been using Robert's rules since 1998, um, but it wasn't until 2016. You know, we we thought we were one big happy family up until 2016, and then right. we started understanding that uh, there was actually this uh, this group of people that that would just pretend to play nice, but was doing things in the background. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I realized I, I needed to uh, start studying more intently and understanding where the points were that where we could intercede and and demand our rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what got me on the journey of uh, becoming a, a registered parliamentarian and, and really getting a profound understanding of how democracy works. And that's what I've been trying to do with all of my, my peers up here is convey to them what our rights are, uh, what I'm finding is that we are really good at taking orders and we don't question a lot mm-hmm. of the things that we're being ordered to do. And what I want people to understand is when their rights are being trampled upon. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've, we use this, this voting system called Maestro um, and we've tolerated it for years. Well, it turns out that that was never approved in the bylaws and so it can't be used. Um, it was used in the executive committee meeting where the delegate selection plan was approved, but it required a two-thirds vote. And we know that uh, there were a handful of votes that did not get registered by their machine because we compared notes afterwards of mm-hmm. who had voted against this plan. And so we don't know if it actually got two-thirds votes or not because uh, it didn't register a handful of votes. And we don't know mm-hmm. how people voted who actually cast their vote. Which is why they should vacate the election, redo it when that happens, and they choose not to, which I never understand. Yes. Uh, And those are the arguments that we're going to be making. Good arguments. 
I also know that the establishment delegates in the party often use this argument about calling for unity and the, the, the call for unity always comes after they've engaged in some garbage, right? And then they'll turn yeah. around and say, we need unity as if the progressives are just to accept the garbage they just engaged in and, and you know, swallow their medicine, which is very annoying. Is this another typical tap tactic that you've witnessed as well? Oh, yeah. It's, you people need to do what we basically you people need to do what we tell you to do yeah. and stop fighting against us and we'll get along <laughs> and we're saying no we have rights in this and you need to respect our rights and when we get to that point things are going to be much better mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about actual parliamentary procedure so we're we're trying to train some basic new delegates in what they basically need to know if they're going into a meeting where they know they're going to be experiencing uh, these various tactics that we just discussed. What are some of the things that they should know? Um, they need to know their core rights. So, you know, the, the core rights under parliamentary procedure is you have, if you are a member of an assembly, you have the right to participate in the debate. You have the right to attend meetings uh, and you have the right to vote. Uh, and, they, and these rights cannot be taken away from you individually. Um, they have to be collectively dealt with, with by passing special rules. And, you know, these seem kind of obvious, but we had a situation in our own party where they would close the credentialing table at the beginning of the meeting. So when people would arrive after driving several hours to get to the meeting, if they would arrive 10 minutes late, they were denied uh, their right to participate in the meeting. That's which insane. violates one of their fundamental principles. And so we were able to demonstrate to the credentials committee that, no, you actually cannot close credentialing because you cannot deny anyone their right to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair. And these are, we're talking about delegates that won their positions in uh, legitimate elections, correct? Correct. Okay. So you're in the meeting now and we're following Robert's rules of order. What are some basic... Um, things that they would need to know when they're in the meeting itself. There's, there's a number of tools where you can demand your rights and, uh, and some of them get abused. Uh, like one of the, one of the rights that gets abused is this thing called calling the question, mm-hmm. which is an archaic form of ending fate. And what you find is chairs. So if, if you're debating something and someone says, I call the question, you find chairs who don't really understand uh, what they're doing saying, okay, debate has ended and now we go to a vote. <sighs> In reality, what calling the question does is it triggers a vote and if only if two-thirds of the people in the room agree to end debate, you end debate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's probably one of the most abusive things I've seen in the past. Right, so um, if you're in a situation where that happens, what the progressive person delegate needs to do is say, well, if we're going to do that, we need to have a show of arms that is two-thirds that agree. They need to stop it right there and interject with that, correct? Yes. Okay. What else? Um, you see chairs making decisions which they are not entitled to make. So mm-hmm. they'll make rulings like, you know, I think we're going to end this debate now and we're going to move on. That is not a chair decision. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that you is chairs adjourning a meeting uh chairs do not 
adjourn meeting. Um, only the assembly can adjourn a meeting. Um, if you have gone through an agenda and there's no more business, then yes, the chair can call the meeting ended because it's clearly ended. But you can't be mid. I don't know if you saw the tape of the Nevada uh, mm-hmm. Democratic Convention in 2016, but right. you saw uh, the chair gavel the meeting to an end, which she can't do. Mm. My pleasure. Um, we were pretty surprised by by Senator Sanders' statement on Nevada uh, and his uh, calling out uh, what he thought was bad practices. Just tell people, what what's the worst thing that happened on Saturday that really voters should know about around the country and care about? Well, I mean, the way the convention started, I think if you watch the video online, you can see it. And, and this was uh, confirmed by uh, people like Senator Nina Turner, who was there in the room, uh, who's a former senator from Ohio. Uh, when they try to pass temporary rules to shut off debate in, in the event. Uh, they were asked for the yeas and nays, you know, a voice vote. Uh, people in the room pretty clearly said that the nays won it. Uh, at worst, it was indecisive, and yet uh, the chair overruled them, uh, said the ayes had it, and then proceeded, you know, to run the convention under these uh, modified temporary rules, uh, which were designed to sort of foreclose debate. So what's the difference between the outcome that, that exists now and the outcome that you think would have existed had the thing been run, from your point of view, fairly? Well, I'm not sure uh, what the, how the outcome would have been different, Mark, but I don't think that's really the issue. The issue is, 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 is a huge segment of the Democratic Party going to be treated with fairness? Uh, and I don't think that that happened in Nevada, uh, based on everybody that I have uh, talked to. You know, the Bernie Sanders has run in states all across this country, uh, and by and large, state Democratic parties have been extremely fair and tried to be, be even-handed. Uh, and that just was not the experience in Nevada, either at the state level or, you know, if you look back at the Clark County Convention that happened recently, uh, where they tried to depose against their own rules, their own credentials chair, and almost had her arrested uh, because there was a perception that she was being too fair to the Sanders people. So there's been a long, this is not just Saturday, it's a lot, it was a lot of events leading up to it. I think there was a lot of frustration. Uh, obviously our campaign uh, condemns any uh, suggestion of violence uh, or threats, uh, but clearly there has been a, a level of unfairness uh, in Nevada that we have not seen in other states. Mm-hmm. So when the when the chair does that and the chair storms off, then what you do is you you either find the next vice chair to continue with the meeting, right. or if you can't find that, then you, you elect your own chair to continue the meeting because the meeting has not ended. Right. So, or you just yell at the walking, the chair that's walking out, you are out of order. <laughs> <laughs> As they like to do to us, right? So, no, that's some yeah. good advice. What other, um, I, I guess I'd like to be able to have our new delegates come away from this podcast episode with learning something about how to conduct themselves in a meeting if they find themselves in a situation that is going in the wrong direction or where their voices are being shut out, which I've seen so many times. So um, now with the chair, you you have something to say. You're interjecting yourselves into a conversation and it's a necessary and salient point. And the chair automatically says to you, you are out of order. What are your valid responses to that? Uh, that's pretty blatant. So uh, you could say point of order, you know, uh, under, you know, what, what do you mean? Uh, you know, I, I have three minutes to, to debate. I've spoken for two minutes. I have one more minute remaining. Mm-hmm. What, why are you calling me out of order? You can, you can call that on them. Um, Let me let me ask you a direct question. Something I witnessed that I didn't seem right to me. Uh, 
at the credentials meeting, when they were louding time, you have three minutes to speak, whatever it was, you know, they had more than one witness. And oftentimes they were two separate um, beefs that they were bringing to the table. They weren't together, but the credentials committee was sort of combining them saying, you have to decide amongst yourself who gets what part of the three minutes when it seemed to me they should have each had their own three minutes. How would you find yeah, that? Well, you, you have to have a copy of the rules that they're enforcing. So number one, the, if there is no agreed upon limit for speaking, the rule is you cannot speak more than twice on any topic for longer than 10 minutes, mm -hmm. which is a very long amount of time. Mm -hmm. Usually what groups do is they pass special rules that says, you know, everyone can speak for a maximum of three times for five minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got to have a copy of the rules so you know what the rules are uh, so you can either demonstrate that they're being followed or they're not being followed. And it's, this all goes back to what we are as a country. So we are the first country that was formed on the rule of law. And mm -hmm. so, you know, following rules is fundamental to the way we operate. The only alternative is violence. Uh, so it's really important that we all follow the rules. Mm -hmm. So is it possible then that the credentials committee has their own separate sub rules that limits three minutes? But then again, I still felt that them combining these two legitimate separate um, problems together into one didn't seem right. Just because they had a commonality didn't seem enough for me for them to be joining them as one. No more questions? Okay, now we bring <coughs> the other side. No, I had a, I had a appeal. The so you're on the appeal of the second election? No, right? I appealed the first one. I, I appealed the decision so in the first election. Those were consolidated together. So okay. Be all right. the same I made an argument on a different ground, but that's all. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, so no more questions? No, we got to take a presentation from the other side. And again, to clarify for folks going forward, you need to work out your times together of how you're going to divide them up if there are multiple challengers on an item. Um, no. Yeah, another another core concept which people really need to grasp onto is that your assembly, which is your core group of people, has the power and they allocate that out to things like committees to do specific things. Like right now what we have is uh, a very similar situation where the credentials committee has come up with this elaborate set of processes for credentialing people to an electronic meeting that's going to happen next week. Some of us are not in agreement with what that's done, what they've done. Uh, a committee does not have the right to impose their decisions on anyone else. So Unless committees have been granted the authority to do that, they cannot do that upon do that on their own accord. Mm -hmm. So, if they want rules to be accepted by the assembly, they have to be presented to the assembly and voted upon. But unless it's stated otherwise, committees cannot go off and make up their own stuff. Right. So that's not happening. Um... And in your situation, tell us a little bit about the surrounding environment on this um, elect the election you're talking about. If you are bringing up a problem, several of you are bringing up a problem, and it hasn't been presented to the rest of the assembly, how can they go forward with that decision? Uh, 
Well, this is where it gets tricky. So uh, we, if the chair has a parliamentarian, uh, they can ask the parliamentarian for advice and then pass it on. Although the parliamentarian is only advisory and the chair is still responsible for whatever ruling they make. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, you, you just can't elect bad people to be chairing of organizations. So they take take a role of chair and they have no respect for the assembly. They're not going to develop respect. Right. And so there's, you know, there's ability to recall, um, you know, and that should be outlined in your bylaws. You know, the process you follow for recalling. That's that's the nuclear option, but uh, sometimes that's that's what you have to do. Indeed, I I get that. So, um, I so you know, recently we we elected, obviously two weeks ago, we we uh, elected a new chair here in California, Rusty Hicks, and there had been some contention. Uh, surrounding the previous election where Eric Bauman, who was bidding, uh, he's got like three lawsuits against him for sexual harassment, but there's many more accusers than that. So he was engulfed in a lot of scandal. And <laughs> Awkward. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's very awkward. But one of, one of the internal battles right now is that the party itself has hired a law firm that is known for defending corporations, large corporations against legitimate claims of sexual harassment. So it seems rather hypocritical to a lot of folks. Uh, So now there's this internal battle going on over that. They don't seem to be making any headway though. And oftentimes I've noticed in these meetings that the staff members, we're not talking about the delegates now, we're talking about the paid staff of the party. They kind of stick their noses in where they don't belong. What are some of the ways that delegates could fight back against that? Because oftentimes the staff members are they're uh, they're protecting the party itself and not necessarily the ideals of progressives in the party. So there's a sort of a, a disconnect. Have you witnessed any situations like that? And what would be your advice um, to the delegates in that position? Uh, yes, I witnessed it uh, often. You know the, the ways to push back are uh, are sometimes abrasive, but I mean when people are trying to take away your power, uh, you know that that that's what it ends up being. So when you have a committee, you have members of the committee, and you have and they're designated as members of the committee, and they have the right to speak. A staff member is not a member of the committee mm-hmm. and should not be involved in the deliberations of the committee unless the committee has voted. To allow them to speak, so we often see our executive director speaking. Usually, he's polite enough to ask permission to speak, but sometimes he just strides up to the mic and starts speaking. Yeah, um, we have the right to say, you know, point of order. Uh, you're not a member of the assembly, and you've not not been allowed to speak. Um, so we need to take a vote, or we need to relinquish the mic. Mm-hmm. You know, so part of the problem also is that when you try to go through the rules committee, I've seen this in the past couple of years here in California, when you try to make changes and you're going through the rules committee, oftentimes the rules committee is stacked with folks that don't want to make changes. So they... (laughs) No. (laughs) Right? So you try to get this reform pushed through and it's just shut down. So nothing gets fixed. Um, What are some ways we can get around that? 
if you don't have a majority, uh, you're pretty much screwed. Cause that's just, that's the cornerstone of democracy. So you're fucked, right? unless you, yeah, unless your arguments are rock solid and you you're persuasive, uh, you're 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 just a non-starter. Um, yeah, this is where we're at. And because, that's it. Yeah, because and that's we, what happens. You get position. shut down. Yeah. So for the past two years, we tried doing some basic reforms. Uh, we would get them through the committee because we had a majority of people who wanted change there, but we were unable to get most of them passed through the state central committee because um, uh, the establishment would invoke <laughs> just bizarre stuff, but end up making it an emotional decision as opposed to a rational decision. <laughs> Do you have any examples of that? Well, the worst one was... Uh, uh, one of the people was, was arguing to reform the way the committees were were uh, chaired, and he mentioned Thomas Jefferson, and one of the opponents of this was an African-American, and someone else jumped up and said, how dare you invoke Thomas Jefferson when we have, you know, this member here uh, who's opposing, you know, what, what you're stating. And, it, you know, I was like, you know, Thomas Jefferson did have his, have his problems, but he also uh, had some really great ideas in terms of uh, freedom and independence from the founding of the country. So that was mm-hmm. the most egregious one I saw. Yeah, that seems strange. I have seen I have seen that happen though with Thomas Jefferson in defense of not having separation of church and state. So I hear that. Um, if okay, so. If, it seems to me after after talking to you for a minute here that we're in a really big rock and a hard place, meaning that we can't get the reform pushed through the rules committee uh, because it's stacked with establishment folks that don't want to institute these change because their intentions are ultimately to, pr- to protect the uh, corporate class. And if we can't get that done then we can't really move forward in any capacity because at the end of the day, the DNC and each state party holds all the cards. They have the power. They can make the choices that they want to make. And those choices aren't necessarily going to be democratic. What do we do? Or is it just, I mean, are we really fucked? Well, uh, it is a, it is tough in this day and age where people want instant gratification. Uh, I've, I've been impressed with the people that have joined us since 2016 and that, you know, even though we haven't gotten everything we wanted, we've made, in, you know, some incremental changes up here uh, and they've still hung in there uh, with the hope that we're going to be able to complete our work. But you really have to view this in terms of at least a two-year cycle. Uh, it starts with the election of precinct committee persons um, and then the election of the county, well, in Oregon, it's the election of the county uh, officers and then the delegates to the state central committee, who then is either establishment or progressive, depending on who gets elected. Mm-hmm. And so what you really need to do, and this is what I would hope every state would do, is step back, map out the entire complex system of where people get elected and where you have to start making changes to get your people in place. Now, I understand that, like in California, you have uh, legacy delegates that are not elected, and mm-hmm. those are built into your bylaws. That's right. Which is 
problematic. So yeah, uh, it's you know, it's two thirds of our delegates are not elected, so it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how but do we? The only way to attack this is to map out the entire system and figure out why you need to change, and then systematically go after. Well, yeah, you know, and that's uh, that's the fight that's been going on for a while now. And it's not it's not just in, in the California Democratic Party. It's also in the DNC. Let's talk a second about superdelegates in the DNC. So, you know, one of the things that came out of the Unity Reform Commission was that they were eliminated on the first round of voting. But yes, that's a win. It's better than it was previously. But is it really the ultimate solution? Because I feel the door has been left open for the party to do whatever they want, a la like Henry Wallace when he was the vice president for Roosevelt and what happened at that particular convention where he won the first round of voting, but then was removed and replaced with Truman subsequently. So... What are your thoughts on that? Is that a worry? Um, is this something we should be concerned about? Or do you think that that's changed enough where it won't be a problem come convention time? Um, it's better than it was. I was actually on the rules committee on the, before the convention started in, in 2016 mm-hmm. that, that, that created the Unity Commission. And right. we had a big debate there about the superdelegates and whether they should be allowed to vote. And I, I can't remember the argument, but there was a contingent of uh, 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 minorities from the South who felt that it was critically important for us to retain the superdelegate uh, system because that was their only way to have a voice in the party. Really? And uh, it was a strong enough argument that that we were that they were able to keep the the superdelegates continuing their vote, although the numbers have been greatly diminished. Hang on a second. Can we talk about that for a moment? Because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The superdelegates are not known for voting on the side of our minority brothers and sisters. They are usually voting for corporate power. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's, it's it's not black and white. So, like here in Oregon, uh, in 2016, we had uh, something like 13 superdelegates, and even though Bernie Sanders took a majority of in the primary, there were only three superdelegates that voted for him, uh, and the rest went for Hillary. See, that's um, that's not representing the voice of the people at all. You know, same we had the same not. thing here in our district. Our dis our district in the primary went majority to Bernie Sanders, but the superdelegate from our district voted for Hillary. So they're thwarting the will of the people. They are certainly not supporting the rights of any disenfranchised group whatsoever. Yep. To me, this isn't We're democracy. in violent agreement. Yeah, we're in violent agreement. <laughs> I love being violent agreement, but that's a wild <laughs> argument. So, so that did sustain itself. I had not heard that before. What else came out of that uh, rules committee hearing? That was about it. Um, hmm. You know, we, we went through th- like three hours, the first three hours, and just straight up vote for every proposal by the progressive was voted down by the establishment because BWS is backed the committee with two thirds Hillary supporters, one third mm-hmm. Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was when they took the break and they went off and, uh, and negotiated the Unity Commission, 
and brought it back, and both sides convinced the the vast majority of members of the, the Rules Committee to, to vote for it. The Rules Committee for the convention had 169 members to it. Mm-hmm. So it was like, it, it's not a committee like, you know, 12 people like you would normally right. think. Right. And I would also point out that every single Clinton appointee to the Unity Reform Commission was a lobbyist. Every single one. Again, how is that supporting the will of the people? Uh, Clearly not. (laughs) I just so so we have a lot of problems to fight here. Um so what what do you think the DNC is going to look like going into the primary convention? And what do you think is going to come of it? Uh, I think it's all going to hinge on who, who wins the who wins the primary and if they beat Donald Trump. Um, my personal opinion is that the DNC will not change unless Bernie Sanders is elected. Mm-hmm. I you know, there's a lot of well-intended candidates running on the Democratic Party, but I don't see them being, I don't hear any of them talking about being passionate about reforming the Democratic Party itself. Right. Where Bernie Sanders understands and has experienced firsthand the corruptness of the Democratic Party. And my expectation is that he, of anybody, would would be in there for reforming, making some fundamental reform. Yeah, I agree like with right that. Right now, you know, right now the the chair of the party uh, has uh, unfettered uh, uh, right to do anything they want in terms of the standing committees. Mm-hmm. So there is no limit on the number of members of a standing committee. There is no uh, geographic distribution requirements. Mm-hmm. It is whoever the chair wants to put on the uh, standing committees, and they serve at at his pleasure. So currently, there's 31 members. Most of them are on the East Coast. Um, uh, he could add people, but uh, you know, I, I don't see that happening before the convention. Uh, I would, I would hope that uh, if Sanders is elected, he would do things like, uh, you know, put basic parameters around how the members, how the the committees are comprised, mm-hmm. like. Um, some form of geographic distribution or regional distribution. So everyone gets represented on these committees. Mm -hmm. It's not just people who owe their allegiance to the chair, Uh, because until they have some form of independence, they're not going to be able to think independently. Yeah, indeed. Um, So let's say that Bernie Sanders wins the primary. He goes into the convention in the poll position is it possible that the super delegates on a second vote don't don't support him and he becomes uh, he doesn't become the nominee? Is that or is that crazy talk? Uh, it's possible if, if it was close. So if it was Bernie Sanders and another another candidate who got a very close number of votes, then yes, it's the well. It's actually very complex because on the first round of voting, everyone is bound by who they pledged for. Mm-hmm. Everyone is released on the second round of voting. So, uh, you know, someone who's pledged for 
Elizabeth Warren in the first round could then vote for Bernie Sanders in the second round or mm-hmm. vice versa. So, uh, you know, for all, and this is why the plurality voting ends up being such a critical issue. Right. We want to be able to elect people who will vote for Bernie Sanders in as many rounds of voting that occur. Mm-hmm. We don't want to get someone in there who's a convention tourist who votes for Bernie Sanders in the first round and, you know, votes for someone else in the subsequent rounds. Yeah, that's really important. So, so it's like 52 pickups after the first round. That's right. That's right. So exactly right. So which brings us to the uh, convention delegates. We will have uh, caucuses here in California in which we elect uh, Bernie Sanders delegates and whoever the other. I'm assuming. See, I'm already assuming Bernie's winning. You see this? <laughs> you see what I did there? Um so you, you're, you, these are separate caucuses where we elect the delegates that go to the convention. Uh, now, is Oregon, do they have a similar format? Yes. So now we saw a lot of shenanigans in 2016 in regards to some of these um, elections and caucuses. And I feel like a lot of those systems haven't been fixed. And so the problems are still inherent. Uh, do you think we're going to see a repeat going into the primary season where we're actually voting now? Right now we're just campaigning, but soon enough we're going to start seeing election results return uh, coming back from each state. Do you think it's possible that we're going to see a repeat performance of the crap we saw in 2016? Uh, I'm not familiar with anything that happened outside of Oregon. And, oh, okay. You know, when it comes to the actual execution of things like the delegate selection process, uh, the the process is adhered to. So I I don't expect anything uh, going wrong in terms of following the process that we laid out. Okay. You know, the, our gap our gaps in Oregon is you know with the plurality uh, voting if that that's still there, um, and then the other issue that we we are having problems with is. Because the second congressional district is the rural part of the state and it's two thirds of the state, uh, which is a, the seventh largest congressional district in the entire country. Mm-hmm. They want to do internet voting, but it's also, it's also the, the district with the less, least developed infrastructure in terms of the internet. And so we find it very problematic to be basing processes on something as shaky as the internet in that part of the country. Um, I agree. I wouldn't trust the internet either. There's too many ways that you could mess with the voting. I wouldn't trust that. I'm I'm a big paper ballot kind of a girl. The best thing is we all get in a room. Yeah. It only happens once every four years. Just do the five hour drive and Mm -hmm. show up and do your duty. I agree. I agree. So Um, You know, some of the shenanigans I was referring to would be in Iowa, how they ended up having coin tosses at several locations or not allowing enough space for all the voters to get inside to vote or the videos you saw of folks uh, where there wasn't a clear majority on either side. So, you know, um, in California, when we caucus, we we still cast actual paper ballots. I don't know if you do that in Oregon. So you'll get a you'll get a ballot, and you have your option for delegates on it, and you get to pick. I can't remember how many three I think from each district or so, and so then they're counted that way. So at least you have a paper trail. You don't know who cast the vote, 
uh, and there's been some problems with non-party folks or people that live outside the district coming into the caucuses and voting, which isn't <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It's it's a problem. And uh, which was one of the corruption issues that we have with our ADEM delegate elections. Uh, we uncovered several instances where it was proven that there were folks that were Republicans that were voting that didn't live in the district. Um, but having said that, there's so many ways that you can Mickey Mouse the system. I think it's a problem in the sense that a lot of the party members, a lot of the voters out there no longer trust the system. And not trusting the system is just deadly on so many levels. And I really wish the party would realize that and do something to rebuild the bridges that they broke in 2016. Yeah. And I feel like they haven't done much to do to change that. And because of it, you know, the other side of that is that we've lost voter roles. People have left the party and are now registered independent. Uh, the mid- the vast majority of voters in California are NPP, which is no party preference. Most of them are left-leaning. It's California. But they're entirely fed up with the system. They don't trust the party. This does not help. So Yeah. The, it's a, and, you know, the, the creation of the Working Family Party also pulled away good, you know, solid citizens who want to do the right thing from the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and left us with the establishment. And so, you know, what we find ourselves here doing is continually asking people to, you know, just trust us. If we all work together, we can improve things. Um, and as long as we can show progress, people seem to be more or less willing to hang around and, and stay. But, you know, some of these fights just get so mean and nasty. And this is how people are spending their personal life and and at some point, they, they will walk away. Um, yeah, and it's I, the party's the fault. Meeting, yeah, I look at. I was at the. I was at a meeting where they spent four hours discussing me being bullied by the chair, <laughs> and everyone thought I had rigged the censure of the chair, which I had not. And so people were glaring at me for for four hours, and it's like, you know, this is my party, and I'm staying, and I'm going to fight to clean it up until. Mm-hmm. I just walk away in frustration. But we all have to stay in there, and we have to get more people involved demanding that things be done correctly. I know the issues that you identified in terms of the caucuses and the, you know, the the problem is you have to understand the entire system, and so you have to you have to interject early on, like with the credentialing process and the design of the voting, and get all of those rules specified correctly in advance and then you can enforce the rules to make sure that things are getting done correctly it's where the rules are poorly written or are absent if you get into situations like decisions made with point tosses and that kind of bs right uh, and it's just very hard to do it is tough yeah, it is tough. Um, I think one of the things that works towards our advantage here in California is that we are a semi-open primary system state uh, which allows for not in not in the party politics, but in the actual elections, it allows for NPP voters to request a Democratic ballot and vote for our candidates. Republicans cannot do that, but NPP people can. So, um, which is why 
it's so important for uh, Democrats in the state to woo the left-leaning independent voters. They're really important. Uh, now, Oregon is not set up that way. So my question is, do you think it would be a benefit for both the party and for the country if we move to semi-open primaries in every state? Well, we have the ability to open our primary to the non-affiliated voters if we choose to do so. Okay. Um, the party rules allow it on a two-thirds vote, and we uh, we almost got it open two years ago. Uh, okay. We got a majority to agree to open the party, but we needed two-thirds. Okay. And so we will be trying again this year because we agree. I mean, we have a situation where uh, people are registered when they go through the to get their driver's license, and they're they're put in the non-affiliated category, and so they have to do something intentional to join a party. And no one reaches out and right. tries to include them, and so they end up in this massive, you know, uh, pool of people who don't feel allegiance to any party. Which, mm-hmm. um, you know, I we the the Democratic Party would be stronger if people who share the same values work together. I agree. And that's not happening. And I and I think every time we can blame the party establishment because <laughs> I just but honestly, I think where we've gone really awry is that a lot of these folks just don't give a shit about the voters anymore. They're more concerned about the donor base and the donor class. And every time I turn around, I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi has been terrible for leadership, yet here we are. Um, the fundamental changes I feel that need to happen ha- need to happen in that area. We need to get folks in these power positions that are willing to piss off the donor class in order to get the votes. Because I think the reason that Organizing for America and Bernie Sanders have been so effective at fundraising and having everything that attaches with that, the enthusiasm, is because they forewent the corporate large donors and instead had organizations that went after small donors, but lots of them and involved them in the process. So they felt connected and the DNC and the state parties are not doing that now. They're only like, you know, we, we had, here's an example. We had a, a, I couldn't see this because I was, I was, I was in front of the stage under the podium videotaping the Bernie Sanders speech but apparently, after after it was over, I went back to where the press pit was, and I learned there was all of this. These brawls were breaking out between delegates, and I couldn't understand what was going on. So I asked one of my coworkers, and he said, "Didn't you see the ads on the side of the screen?" I'm like, "No, I couldn't see the side screens." So I went back and looked at the footage, and sure enough, there were ads for Jewel, there were ads for Uber, there were ads. <laughs> No, and you sort of have to appreciate the ad for Uber, the company that refuses, fucking refuses, refuses to unionize, and they're running the Uber ad in the middle of Sanders' speech. Are you fucking kidding me? So, yep. And the response from from the leadership was, "Well, these conventions aren't free." Well, no shit. Nobody said that they were, but the point is, is you're taking money from companies that don't hold the same values that we do as a party. It's a problem. And secondly, every time you do that, individual donors walk away from you. They, they stop giving you money because they see what you're doing. It's sort of, um, they're intertwined in a way, and I don't understand why the establishment doesn't see this. They, 
they just get addicted to the 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 money coming from fewer sources and it's easier to get it that way and so they mm. take the path of least resistance. Yeah, you know there is that it is easier but but at what cost? Uh, this I don't understand why they don't see why voter enthusiasm, uh, voter participation, party loyalty, these things are all attached to that in a large way. And they seem to not understand that. And it's not serving the interests of Democrats. Yeah, I mean, to, to until last year, it was, you were, you were considered a traitor if you broached the topic of challenging an incumbent right. uh, in the primary. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, most of our legislators in Oregon are fairly good, but there were a few that really need replaced. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but we had this huge fight within the party about giving access to the voter data file to people challenging incumbents mm. because the party had these rules, which was not approved by the assembly, mm-hmm. uh, to ban challengers of incumbents from having data. Well, if you then can't get the data, and you know you've seen the the the, the DNC banning. Uh, uh, political campaign firms from helping challengers to incumbents. When you have that kind of stuff going on, it really stacks the deck against anyone trying to get in. Mm-hmm. And if you have a bunch of corporate Democrats who, who you know, cater to corporate interests as opposed to what the people want, mm-hmm. then that's, that's who's going to get all the attention when they write legislation. That's absolutely true. Uh, one of the things that the progressives in California are fighting, the delegates are trying to change, is the automa- the automatic endorsement of sitting incumbents because it's not fair. And it, you know, so last year at the convention, we had situations where like Feinstein did not get a CDP endorsement because the delegates were able to block that. So they didn't necessarily get to endorse the candidate that they wanted, but at least they stopped the endorsement of the um, sitting incumbent. So the new chair, Rusty Hicks, is, is, you know, I was in the Progressive Caucus and they were going through questions where the candidates were allowed to hold up a paddle that said yes or no to questions that the chair was asking. And one of the questions was, do you support automatic endorsement of incumbents? Rusty Hicks was the only one that said yes to this. All the other candidates said no, and he's the new chair. So it's great, right? It's really frustrating (laughs) because we should not automatically be endorsing anybody. Just because you're incumbent doesn't mean you're doing a good job. Doesn't mean you're the best candidate. Doesn't mean you're the one that most identifies with the constituents in your district. It just doesn't make sense. Yep. Anyway. So uh, where, if folks want to learn more about the parliamentary system, if they want to get some training in these areas, what would be your recommendations of websites? Um, the, the leading organization in the United States is called the National Association of Parliamentarians, and their website is parliamentarians.org. Uh, you can look up uh, group, study groups, uh, in your area, uh, that you can join in. Uh, it's, and you can, you can work with them. Uh, they have, they have, uh, exams that you take and you can get the higher levels of accreditation. Like you become a, a registered parliamentarian like me, or you can take the next step, which is a professional registered parliamentarian. 
that is probably the best place to get it. And mm -hmm. what you will get from them is an unbiased uh, uh, version of democracy. Uh, and it is so important to understand the core elements of, of parliamentary procedure because it really is what enables democracy to happen. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that people uh, go to parliamentarians.org and find a local group and join up. Um, the average age of the organization is, you know, just shy of a hundred. Um, and so, uh, and they're not really into outreach and, and, right. uh, uh, growing. And so, you know, please be a little patient with them. But, uh, you know, I found some really great mentors that I've been working with and I go to when I have questions on how to deal with some of these issues. Excellent. That would be a great place to start. Excellent. And if folks want to follow you on social media, where can they do that? Uh, I have a couple of websites. One is called advancementofdemocracy.org, and that's where we publicize our, our weekly live stream broadcast. Okay. Um, you can find those at uh, the Uphill Media channel on YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see the shows that I do and the shows that, that John Ellis does, like We the People, and uh, they they also do Progressive California. Mm -hmm. um, uh, those are probably the two best places to uh, find me. Uh, starting in the next couple of weeks, we're having a show launch for uh, discussing parliamentary issues, and we're hoping to actually bring the subject matter alive because it's really dry mm -hmm. uh, when you study it. I know. So this is called, <laughs> it's really dry. This is called, uh, part, the website is parliamentarytalk.org, which is kind of like part talk or uh, philosophy talk. So mm -hmm. it's parliamentarytalk.org. And you can do two things on that site. You can, you can subscribe so you get notices of when the programs will happen. And you can also submit uh, your parliamentary challenges. Like I just had a group that uh, had their annual meeting, but they didn't have a quorum and they didn't know how to deal with a bunch of issues. Mm -hmm. So I helped walk them through how to address and get things done and so they're back on track. And so uh, my co-host and I will be discussing those kinds of things and hopefully we'll be bringing parliamentary procedure alive with real life situations. Excellent. And hopefully on that show, you'll be able to get um, people to email you or contact you to bring up their situations that they need help with. I think because I think you're right. I think this is a necessary component that's missing in the progressive activism out there. Folks don't know how to use Robert's rules. They get thwarted by establishments. I've witnessed it time and time again in these in these rooms. And if they hadn't had this information in their back pocket, they'd be able to fight harder, fight more effectively, and fight better. So yep. great that you're doing this. Thanks for coming on, Lawrence. This is really important information. Um, and we'll have to have you on again to talk about more stuff. Oh, thanks when you... for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. <laughs>